welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear stories of someone brave enough to bear it all. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Hello, and welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Shay, I'm really excited to have Joshua Shay on. Joshua, how are you? I am doing well. Thank you for having me today. I'm super excited. If this podcast is something that resonates with you and it's helping, please hit subscribe and leave a review. We always appreciate that. Joshua, I told you when we were pre-gaming that I got to read your book. Well, one of them. You're an author yeah. a couple of times. So let's jump in and talk about who you are and what you're doing right now. All right. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Joshua Shea, and I spend a lot of time, uh, since I am a recovering uh, pornography addict and alcoholic, I spend a lot of time out there trying to educate uh, the general population that, yes, indeed, pornography addiction actually is a thing. And it's not only that, uh, if we don't start paying attention soon, this could actually become a major healthcare crisis. Uh, and then aside from that, I also work with a lot of uh, men who are pornography addicts and their female partners, usually separately, uh, to introduce them to the idea of the addiction and urge them to uh, seek some real therapy. I'm kind of a bridge from doing nothing to actually going and getting therapy for a lot of people. I think that's excellent. Now I reached out to you. I found you in this, in an odd way. Um, and I, I actually hesitated because I'm the naked podcaster and you have a pornography addiction. And I loved that, I, I said, I thought, forget it, I'm just gonna send the invite. Worst case scenario is you don't answer me or you say no, and no harm, no foul. But I loved your answer, and I'd like to share some of that. Sure. Um, you talked about the being a porn addict isn't about the naked person on the other end, and that we right. could really, and that's hard for people to understand. So I really wanna talk about this, and I think, you know, I'm not naked in the sense of any pornography at all. It's actually a play on words to bear your soul. So I'm bearing it all, you're bearing it all in, in different ways. It's figurative, but it's also literal for me because I'm right. clearly, you know, um, and I, you talked about, it's not the person on the end, on the end of the magazine or on the screen. And it's like, it's not about the flavor of the food or the money for the gambling addict, or it's, to, let's just start there and jump in there. Okay. Uh, well, first off, when we're, when we're talking uh, addiction, addiction yeah. usually is just a symptom of a bigger problem. Uh, with pornography addiction, um, it's almost always childhood trauma. Uh, pornography and sex addiction, I should say. Uh, Patrick Carnes, who's one of the two big gurus in this uh, industry, along with Dr. Robert Weiss, um, he's done studies and he believes that uh, roughly 70% of porn or sex addicts have had physical abuse, uh, 80% have had some kind of sexual abuse, and 97% have had uh, emotional abuse upon them as a child that created some kind of trauma. Uh, you look at other studies, it basically says somewhere between 90 and 94% of uh, porn addicts have had some kind of trauma in their, their lives. 
you know, I'm, I'm no different than that. And that's really, you know, what it is, is that you're escaping the trauma. There are people who use pornography in a simply recreational manner um, for masturbation, for getting off, for a substitute for not having a woman that night or not having a man that night or whatever your proclivities are. Um, and, you know, that that's cool, but that's not why the addict uses. The addict is using to soothe something deeper, whether it's escape, whether it's control, whether it's lack of love, whatever it is that they're trying to soothe and fill, that's where their pornography goes. And the other thing that uh, we have to remember is while we can agree that certain things are pornography, the kind of stuff you're going to find in a triple X movie is pornography you know there are plenty of men who utilize things like a victoria's secret catalog as pornography or they look at girls in bikinis as pornography now is that pornography for you and i well that's really a definition thing and that's where a lot of it comes down to is you know in in, in my view is what is the intent of the material and for me any material that is used for sexual gratification could be classified as pornography. You know, you go and look at some of the, you know, great museums in this world of the, you know, nude art that they have, whether it be, you know, statues or paintings, is that pornography? Well, for some men, it actually could be. For, you know, other men, not a big deal at all. Uh, pornography is one of those things much like somebody who has an eating disorder or somebody who has a gambling disorder, not necessarily as much gambling, but definitely eating where you have to find that, that healthy medium and you have to know uh, what is a healthy way of being. The idea behind being, say, a drug addict is that you never touch the drug. It's complete abstinence. Well, that can't be the way for, for a sex addict or even a porn addict because it's not realistic to think I'm never going to see a naked person ever again. But when you get to the core of the problem, like I mentioned, it's not about a naked person. It's about what you're getting out of that material and what it is you're trying to soothe and getting to the root of that problem. And I would think unless it's a triple X movie, you can abstain from certain things, but it's everywhere. It's yeah. billboards. I mean, if you're talking about a woman in a bikini, you're talking about all beaches. Yeah, and you're absolutely. talking you're talking about the Victoria's Secret billboard when you're walking down the street. Like it, it is not, it would not be possible to eliminate completely. I w I want to go back. You talked about ninety seven percent emotional abuse, and coming from an abusive um, background where both my parents were addicts, emotional abuse is the most difficult to quantify. Right. If you if you get hit, I mean, if you're molested, it's sexual. If you're physically abused. You can, you have a bruise or something, you know, I mean, there's outward signs, there's definitive ways to measure that, to quantify that. Emotional abuse is impossible to quantify. Right. And, and what emotional abuse may be for you may not be for me. I mean, there are, there are people who grow up in the exact same environment, treated the exact same way. And you can have one at 40 years old who's a basket case and one who's a perfectly functioning person. Doesn't mean that, you know, anything... Uh, different happened to the two of them. It's just kind of how they how they took it in, and it's one of those uh, gray area things, much much like the definition of pornography. That yeah. it's really about the individual person and meeting their needs. I have a really easy way to sum this up. 
you and I could go with a hundred other people to a workshop for an hour or a church or whatever, something where so we're listening to somebody speak for an hour and we could all sit around a table. You could pick a dozen of us, sit us around a table and talk about what we got out of that seminar, sermon, whatever it was. And it's, it would be astounding that many of us got similar things out of it, like the circles that cross. But a lot of times we got like, wow, I would have never gotten that if you hadn't said that. And wouldn't you agree it's very similar to that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're 100% there where, uh, you know, it is an individual thing and you take from it what you take from it for whatever reason. But that's also what you have to deal with later on. And, you know, some of the, I guess, lucky ones don't have to deal with it later on for whatever uh, coping mechanisms or survival skills they've developed. I love the book. One, you had, you, you did it in a question answer format, which was really easy. So you must have had like the top, however many questions that people have asked or get asked. And you had an expert, a therapist, someone with a lot of years of experience who answered the question. And then you answered the question. And I, I mean, I appreciated both answers, I'd have to say, but I appreciated yours more, I think, because you were in the trenches coming from someone who's experienced it personally than yeah. someone from a therapeutic, although both, both meant a lot and they were very similar. I was surprised because this is about pornography addiction and um, I want to throw some stuff out there. So what I, what, the first thing I'm going to throw out there is that I'm a normie. So I have an addict background where my parents are. I've also been in two relationships with, they were serious long-term relationships. Both of them were addicts in very different ways. And I um, have been told, well, not only am I a normie because I'm not an addict. That's all that that means, correct? Right. What's your perception though on that statement? Is there a lot of gray area with that? Is it not so cut and dry? Does it distinguish? I've been put down for it because being a normie means if you're an addict, then somehow I feel like I'm better than you. And I've never felt that way at yeah, all. No, uh, but, I think, I think hmm. it depends who you're around. Uh, okay. You know, I can use the example of when I was out in California in treatment, Southern California, I really liked the 12-step groups that were out there. I felt welcomed. I felt like we were having uh, good dialogues. Uh, I felt like I was part of a community. When I came back to Maine, uh, I couldn't find an AA group that I liked. I couldn't find a, a uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous group that I liked, where I felt like they were in tune with uh, my personality, where I felt like uh, they understood um, where I was coming from. Uh, they were much more rigid with their follow the rules, A, B, C, D kind of thing. And uh, I, I felt like I was cast out because I wasn't following into their little, little uh uh, way that an alcoholic or a sex addict, uh, porn addict should be. Um, and since I didn't fall into their box, I didn't stick with 12-step groups that way because I felt judged. Um, as far as, you know, you not being addicted to anything, um, I always say to people, everybody's addicted to something, um, whether it's a good habit or a bad habit. Uh, on, on my website, I have this little, so you want to feel like it's an addict uh, uh, experiment, where basically I tell you to put a post-it note over the screen of your phone, turn the volume up all the way, and then keep it next to you all day. And don't look at it when you hear a chime or you hear a ring or you hear that. And I guarantee you by the sixth or seventh text or Snapchat or somebody likes your stuff on Facebook, you're <laughs> going to be feeling this jonesing to look at that. 
And that's the best thing that I can describe to a normie mm -hmm. as being addicted because we have a nation of people addicted to their phones who don't really recognize it as addiction, but that's that it will give you that internal feeling of what addiction is. So, you know, I think everybody in the world's addicted to something. I think everybody in the world should be sitting in therapy. Um, you know, so, you know, you are who you are. I don't blame you for not having an addiction, you know, good for you. I mean, I was kind of hoping we would get into this dialogue because I, I found I felt, I'm. What does that mean? I'm a normie. What does it doesn't mean that I'm better than you. That's your baggage. That somehow in and this was in NA, and I don't know. And like you said, every group is different, right? These are people that I really cared about that I got to know really well through the person I was in the relationship with, and. I think we're all different in no way did I ever think I was better than them. But I love that you pointed out that in one place you loved the, the program and in another place you didn't. And it really is kind of about finding your people too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love the phone analogy because people don't think about it at all. I um, never have my sound. So my husband gets irritated because I never answer my phone because I don't hear it because I don't like it on. And I think, you know, I see with our kids and stuff, they when they have the sound on and it's dinging, it just drives me absolutely crazy, but it's that constant dopamine rush. Yeah, yeah. Somebody needs to tell you something. Somebody's paying attention to you. Somebody's got some <laughs> feedback for you. That's Somebody's so important. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, you know, when I was a little, I remember when I was a little kid around my birthday when the mail would come. You know, oh. for, for a week before my birthday, I'd be running out to the mail to see if I got something. And I thought my parents were so lucky. They got mail every day. And oh, now, wow. now, that, now that I'm an adult, I get excited when the mailbox is empty. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Different dopamine. Like there's exactly. no dopamine. Exactly. But it and is that, your perception. That's kind of it. You get that little rush of, you know, somebody is, uh, somebody wants something from me in, in probably a good way. Uh, I think that's right. the best way to just to describe the phone dopamine rush. I always feel like everything, I mean, a huge part of what I do is online. And I always feel like a lot of it is I, I have to run for prom queen constantly, but I don't want to be prom queen. I have no desire to be prom queen, but for people to hear you, like I'll use your book as an example. I'm a published author. The same thing with me. You write a book and you really want it to make a difference to people. And you know that with your experience and your rawness and authenticity, when you come forward with this book, it really can make a difference. And I, I've read your book, so I completely believe that. I felt the same way about writing my book. Whatever it's about can really help people. If no one knows about your book, therefore doesn't read it, they can't. So in that regard, you kind of need to constantly run for prom queen. You need people to know about it. So you need the dings on the phone. <laughs> so it's, right. it's a constant battle for me because I don't, I don't like running for prom queen. I don't care about the dings on the phone, but if you don't have them, you don't have that exposure. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I, I've got a very close friend who, uh, there's a Netflix documentary out right now called, uh, don't fuck with cats. And he, actually wrote a book about the guy who's the subject of it. He's the only one who's ever actually interviewed the subject. Even the people in this documentary couldn't interview this killer. He's a murderer. And, uh -huh. uh, and But my friend absolutely disdains the promotion part of things. Oh. And he could, he could be out there right now. He could be on these big shows. You know, he's gotten phone calls from TMZs and the big 
big newspapers and whatnot. And he'll, he'll do something if he can re respond in writing, but he has absolutely no interest in being out there promoting himself. And, you know, I try to push him towards it, but he's telling a story in a journalistic way where, you know, I'm telling a personal story and I'm trying to educate and I'm trying to be out there. So, you know, when people ask me to be on their podcast or their radio show, you know, I usually step up and do it because whether you've got two people or 22 people or 2,022 people, that's a few more people that I can reach that I can talk to. Yeah. If I can sell a book, that's fantastic. Uh, but I'm certainly not getting rich at all off of this stuff. Uh, I'm, as I'm sure you know, with your book, yeah. you, pro you probably can buy an appetizer with your with your uh, royalties. Um, exactly. Maybe. But, yeah. But uh, at a medium restaurant. At a medium, um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but that's, you know, we're out there talking about this stuff and, and I hope that, you know, this stuff aggregates over time and, you know, more people get to learn about it. More people talk about it. If somebody's listening to you and I talk right now, you know, maybe they'll have a conversation with a couple of their friends at some point and there's three more people or four more people who have talked about this because that's really what needs to happen. We can't tackle the issue of pornography addiction in this country if people haven't begun talking about it. I was surprised when I read your book that it triggered me. So how so? No, well, okay, let's let's use the normie thing. Okay. I don't have a proclivity to an addiction specifically that's like pornography addiction or alcoholism. But I didn't realize how much addiction has come up in my life and that it um, like you stayed married. Right. Actually, I absolutely want to applaud you and your wife and how it was handled. A lot of the questions that you, that you, you were answering, you said, well, this is how my wife did it. And I thought, God, good for her. Good for her for how she handled it. And good for you for being so aware at how she handled it and in and, and kind or w whether the chicken or the egg or whatever came first. The way you dialogued about your experience with your wife and staying married, that is a great formula for how people can stay successfully in their relationship th working through pornography addiction. I am not with the person that I was with. And so that was a trigger for me. Like, oh, I could have handled things so much differently or better, even though I don't think I handled them poorly. Yeah. But it was through you really expressing. So I, I want people to read your book when they're beginning their journey. And I don't know that my end result would have been a whole lot different. I don't think that it would have been. And one of the things that uh, Tony, who's the expert in the book, and I talked about before we started was we wanted to take the point of view, not of stay married or get divorced, but take the view of pause, just pause. You're going to feel the strongest emotions in the very beginning and just pause. If you are, are not careful, you may end up using the kids as a poker chip. You may yeah. end up using leaving him as a poker chip, you know, just pause, you know, learn a little bit about the addiction and then make informed decisions. If your informed decision is to leave the situation, hey, 
that's fine. Power to you. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't porn addicts who are just shitty husbands who yeah. need to be who need to be left. Um, and you know, so uh, I, I we were very careful of making sure that we didn't take a strong stance either way by pausing and just looking at the situation. Yes, you're together a little bit longer, but that may be the right thing. You know, we, we mm -hmm. talked about don't rush off to your friends who are only going to take your side. You know, speak with a professional who really doesn't care about either of you once it hits five o'clock because yeah. they're going to be able to give you the best view possible of what's happening. You also talked about finding a good therapist. And I'm not saying that there are therapists, and, and that's probably not how you wrote it out, but I'm not saying that therapists are bad at therapists if they're not good ones, but someone who really understands addiction and both people's feelings and perspectives. And I would imagine that not all therapists are adept at that as much as, as no, I, I've, I've heard so many horror stories at yeah. this point, especially from the female uh, partners where, you know, a, a therapist, e even a female therapist will say something like, are you just not having enough sex with him? Uh, yeah. Because they're not familiar with porn addiction or they don't think porn addiction is a real thing. And they think that, you know, you're just, it's a lack of intimacy, usually on the uh, partner's side. Right. And that's, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And you also get younger therapists who are looking to build their clientele. Most therapists need two years if they're going out on their own before they can actually sustain their practice because you've got to build up a clientele. So you're more apt to say, oh, I can handle that problem or I can handle this problem because you need to keep a roof over you know, your head. You need to keep the lights on and they can't handle it. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go to a certified sex addiction therapist or you have to go to this or that. Here, here in Maine, certified sex addiction therapist is not an actual designation. Mm. My therapist through this entire ordeal has been an LCSW but she's oh. amazing she's amazing she has uh a uh background in addiction she had worked with both sex and porn addicts in the past so she was fantastic I, I couldn't ask for anybody better i can't imagine anybody with any kind of education who would have been a better match for me um you know that's and i've had four or five therapists in my life mm -hmm. um a couple good ones and a couple very bad ones. And, you know, I always stress to people, just because somebody may be bad for one person, it doesn't yeah. make them bad for another. And they may be good for someone, doesn't make them good for another. Check this person out. Usually you can tell after about three sessions, don't go on just one, go three, maybe four, and then make your decision at that point if that's the person who you think can guide you to mental health. And I love how much you support that. I do want to go back. You, you talked about physical, sexual, and emotional abuse in childhood. And can you talk to me about repression? I, are, there are a lot of people, it seems, that are living a life of addiction, not knowing where this came from and through therapy realize. Like, you don't even realize that that had happened. You don't remember it. Tell no. me about your experience with that. Well, I first went to uh, inpatient rehab for alcoholism. You know, it was quite clear that I was an alcoholic. I don't think at that point I'd heard of porn addiction. I know I'd heard of sex addiction, but I hadn't heard of porn addiction. I thought I was going to rehab for four weeks, 28 days, just like you see in the movies. And I actually ended up at the rehab that I was in in Palm Springs for 70 days. Um, it took me about a week before I truly wrapped my arms around the fact that, you know, Jesus, I'm the guy they're talking about here. Um, and 
before I could start, you know, I, I knew that there was stuff in my past that was bad. And I kind of knew it came from a babysitter's house when I was young, but I never delved into it. And the person who was my case manager at that uh, rehab, he had a friend who was a CSAT uh, off campus, who in the last several weeks of being at that therapy, at that uh, rehab uh, for the alcoholism, I met him off campus and we started to get into the sexual side of things and, you know, maybe something had happened to me and yes, porn addiction is a real thing and how did I use pornography? And I left there understanding that there was issues with the sexual side of things. There was issues with the por pornographic side of things. This is probably just as big a problem as the alcoholism. And after I came back, after, you know, seven, eight months, the therapist that I had here, she and I, you know, realized that it would probably do me some good to go into a uh, specific sex porn rehabilitation center. So I went down to Texas and I was there for seven weeks, you know, getting into wow. it, delving into it. Those, you know, the 10 weeks for alcoholism, the seven weeks for uh, the porn addiction, those were absolutely transformative experiences. And, you know, I hear a lot of uh, guys and a lot of their partners, be like, you know, my guy, he's a, he's an intense, intense porn addict, you know, but thank God he's going to go get therapy, you know, starting in a month, uh, you know, he's going to go see somebody, you know, once a week. And it's like, you know, once a week for an hour, you know, maybe that's, that can work for somebody who is a new addict or somebody who's you know, starting to develop some addict tendencies. But for somebody, you know, like I was, who was really in a critical point of addiction, uh, it's a, uh, it, it's something that you need to really address head on and very intensively. You know, I had to remove myself from my situation here in Maine and basically just develop all of my new habits from scratch in a new place with no people that I knew, uh, create all of all new relationships, uh, and, and that's really what made the difference for me, I think, was just clearing the slate and, and almost building a new life that I, I could then attempt to take back home to Maine once it had kind of uh, taken root. I know that porn, well, first of all, porn addiction and sex addiction, addiction are two separate things. And you make the clarification when you're talking, but I want to make that statement just for people listening. Which pisses some people off. I've yeah. dealt, I've dealt with uh, I've dealt with some lives. I've dealt with some girlfriends who uh, feel that somehow I have belittled one or the other's trauma uh, by separating the two things. But I describe it. I, I don't like the term sex addiction. To me, sex addiction is up here, and there's a bunch of addictions underneath. The way that drug addiction is up here, and you've got heroin or meth or cocaine. You know, sex addiction. Uh, or sexaholism, or whatever you want to call it. To me, you know, there there is porn addiction. There is intercourse addiction. There is voyeurism and mm -hmm. exhibitionism. Uh, you know, there are these different areas of it. And some guys or, or women who are addicts, they will dab into different areas. But you know, I never once cheated on my wife. I was not an intercourse addict. I was, you know, I I there was no exhibitionism here. There was it was a strict pornography thing. So uh, while you know the uh, uh, mental health world is still uh, arguing and wrestling with how to put the official uh, designations on this for their journals like the DSM or the ICD, um, you've got 
people like me out there who are talking about this and some partners who are very well versed and people who have been going through it for a long time, you know, who don't appreciate that I don't like using the word uh, sex addiction to describe my porn addiction because I think when people think sex addiction, they think intercourse addiction. Mm -hmm. And that was that was never my issue. If we can call sex addiction something else, like a higher level, if we can get to the place where it's sex addiction and then intercourse addiction, I'm fine with that. Uh, I, I just don't want people uh, labeling me the wrong thing. And, you know, yeah. that, that's just who I am. I loved it, actually. I love the differentiation because you're, and, and that was a great analogy. So within drug addiction, there's what, like 20 drugs you could be addicted. Yeah. I mean, hundreds probably, but you can be addicted to one or two and not all of them. And within, ad, within the addict community, in NA, Narcotics Anonymous, heroin addiction is a much different addiction than the others. And even within that, it's kind of like uh, being in the prison system, right? There are different levels of the prison system right. too. And among offenders, there's a hierarchy of good to bad right. as far as what your offense. And it's, it's the same thing. So I like that. Yes, if sex addiction could be the umbrella to a whole bunch of different things, that would be great, but it's not really differentiated. So I love that I, you, you did make that um, comment in the book and you kind of highlighted it, but I want to highlight it here. I'm going to ask you a totally different question. And there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. What did you do for your job before this? And for people who don't know, you actually did six months in jail. Yes. Yes. Because of I, this. I, my porn addiction, uh, Basically, well, I mean, uh, the, the quick version of the story is that um, I was very well known in my community going mm -hmm. back to uh, when all this went down in 2013. Uh, I started a magazine. I was started as a journalist when I was 17 years old. When I was 34, 35, I launched a magazine here in my hometown in central Maine. Uh, it was basically an overnight success, and I became a local celebrity within minutes. Um, about a year after the magazine started, I launched a film festival here in northern uh, New England. That took off immediately as well. About a year after that, I said, what does this area need more of? And the obvious answer was me. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I ran for our city council. And I won that too. Um, so I was very, very well known around here. Um, and I think I did all those things really as a way to put on masks to uh, escape who I was. Uh, you know, and uh, after several years of the magazine being out there, um, I, I launched it in 2008, 2009. Uh, in 2013, uh, late 2012, early 2013, I started noticing that our revenues were plateauing and they were starting to actually uh, decline a little while our expenses were still going up. Now, in the beginning of things, I was a great businessman because I had so much money, I really couldn't make mistakes. But when things start getting tight, I'm not a good businessman. And that's, that was very obvious. Um, so I made a fatal mistake. Um, I was diagnosed as bipolar when I was about 23, 24 years old. And I had been on medication for it. Um, since I was that age. Now, I'm here at 36, 37 years old, and I, in some ways, probably romanticized 
uh, the energy that the bipolar gave me, the mania side of it. I mean, I've got a lot of stories that will curl your fingernails about, you know, stuff that I did at 20 or 21 because I had this untapped or unchecked mania going on. Once that got under control, I brought things down, but I remembered it as this unbridled creativity. I remembered it as I only needed three or four hours of sleep at night. And I stupidly, stupidly told myself, if you pull yourself off of these bipolar meds, you'll have a few hours extra every day to try to save this magazine and turn things around. Take yourself off these bipolar meds and you'll have this kick of creativity where there are parts of your brain and things that you can't even reach right now because these drugs are almost like a restrictor plate on a car. You're not going to your full capacity that you could and you need this right now. Unfortunately, what happened to me was that within a couple of weeks of the drugs leaving my system, my alcoholism probably spiked three, four times of what it was. I was starting to drink in the morning before I went to work. I was you know, always having a liquid lunch. I made sure that late afternoon meetings were always at the brew pub across the street. Uh, and then in the evenings when I was home, I actually, for the first time ever, made the transition from beer to tequila. And, you know, with, with addiction, you know, it, it, it moves up and up. And I needed the, you know, I, I would drink half to a full bottle of tequila every night. And I don't know how many beers that's uh, e equivalent to, but I needed that kind of kick. Um, and the pornography was the same. You know, after I brought my kids to school, I might come home and look at some before I actually went into work. I didn't tend to look at it at work. But then at night, when I would uh, look at pornography, probably five, six nights a week, usually somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour, hour and a half. That was my normal usage of pornography. Well, it ex exploded to two, three hours. And I wasn't getting enough just passively looking at videos. I actually ended up going into chat rooms and starting to talk to women. And one of the things after a, uh, after a few days I realized was they weren't going to just talk, stop and talk to me. So I, uh, through another person that I met online, learned how to, you know, the way you and I are talking now and you see the video of me, I was able to put up a video of someone else, this good looking 23, 24 year old guy who just looked like he was typing away. And uh, it was on like an eight minute loop and, you know, people see what they want to see. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started talking to women online and basically started, uh, you know, catfishing them. And before long, I was able to get them to take off their tops or, you know, do sexual things to themselves. And because I have that journalism background on half of my screen, you know, there's, there's them talking to this you know, avatar that's not even me. And on the other half of the screen, every time they give me this little piece of information, I'm putting together this profile of them. And, you know, if they mention, you know, I'm able to figure out their Facebook page, you know, and oh my goodness, there are a ton of pictures of them at competitive horse jumping. Well, I'm just going to work in that my sister was a competitive horse jumper and that, you know, bonds us together, right? Right away or if it's clear their grandmother died in the last month well my grandmother died in the last month and I started doing this and you know it, it, it took a long time to uh, 
work through it in the rehabs, but that was totally about power. That was totally about mm. control. Uh, that's what my pornography addiction was about. When I was a little boy and I was in that abusive environment, I felt like I had no control. I felt like I had no power. And that's what really became my little bugaboo through life. That's why I launched my own companies. That's you know, I always felt like I had to be in control. I had to create my own reality. And I was in a place in my life where uh, taking myself off the bipolar meds, uh, my my business got even worse. My relationship with my wife and kids got even worse. You know, my, my hygiene was horrible at that point. I was probably taking a shower every five, six days. Um, and I started having these little visions of stuff that happened when I was young or little things happening. My alcoholism was off the chart. I was really, really unhealthy. And the only time that I felt good about myself was when I was able to, you know, two or three in the morning, when I was able to get a woman to bend to my will and do what I wanted. You know, it wasn't even about seeing her naked or her doing something like that. You know, it was about spending two hours convincing her. You know, it, it, it's funny enough that if uh, if I had met you in a chat room, I would have seen that you already had your top off and I'd be like, hey, how are you? Click onto the next one because I would assume it would be too easy. I, <laughs> I, I exactly. Literally, I, right. literally, I literally wanted the kind of woman who would say, oh, I would never do anything like that. And that's like, okay. I'm going to spend the next two to three hours trying to manipulate you into doing it. I've got my, you know, investigative journalism skills over here so I can uh, basically groom you and try to get you to that point. And if after two or three hours, I was able to get them to do that uh, as they were finishing, I would take a screenshot and I didn't take a screenshot because I wanted to, you know, masturbate to it later or anything like that. I, if I wanted to masturbate to porn, I, I know how the internet works. I can find yeah. it. Uh, those were my trophies that mm. showed me that I was in control, that I was capable of something, that I was successful at something. You know, if you had walked into my office in the magazine uh, office, you would have seen behind me all kinds of plaques and trophies and certificates. And they weren't there to show you how awesome I was. They were there to show me how awesome I was because I needed that constant reassurance. And the only way I was getting that at the very end was through this, you know, really sick, twisted thing that I was doing to women at night. And then on the morning of March 20th, 2014, uh, I see two, three cars pull up in front of the house along with a van. And you don't have to be a big fan of 80s cop shows to know what an <laughs> un unmarked car looks like. And when yeah. you see when you see a bunch of guys all wearing golf jackets walking to your house in, in, in March, in Maine, you know that they're police. And I honestly had no idea why they were there. Uh, I thought somebody had died and they were coming to deliver me the, the news. But when I got to my front door, um, the one who was in front, I saw the piece of paper he was carrying and I was able to pick off words quick enough uh, that I knew why they were there. And he was there to tell me that uh, in November of the previous year, they had, of 2013, uh, they had reason to believe that I had uh, created uh, child pornography. And I brought them in the house and it was, what are you talking about? And I ended up talking to a teenage girl one of those nights. And when I made a screen capture of her because I got her to do what I wanted, that was essentially producing child pornography. 
because I created that screen capture. And uh, it was exploitation because I was using an avatar and I wasn't myself. So I, I got arrested right there and, and I couldn't say I didn't do it because they laid it out for me. And it's like, here's what it is. Like, ah, I see. And the guy was like, I don't think you're a pedophile. I don't think you intentionally were going after teenage girls. I just, you just got caught up in this because you're not, you're not well. And uh, I, you know, called my wife at work, had her come bail me out. By the time we got back to my house, which was probably only an hour and a half after I was arrested, there was already a TV news van in front of it. And oh, of course. We had, to of run, course. we had to run from TV news vans. We had to run, you know, from, uh, you know, a lot of the public for the first couple of days because it was the biggest story in Maine for a few days that, uh, you know, this magazine publisher who everyone knew and loved and pillar of the community. And thankfully, I had, st I had just finished being a city councilor at that point. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was what happened. And what was interesting was from the day I was arrested to the day that I was sentenced, that was almost two years. That's when I went to both rehabs. That's when I had hundreds of hours of therapy. That's when I got every book I possibly could to do research about what was going on with me uh, because I wanted to figure this out. I knew that uh, I had a rare opportunity where I could spend a couple years working on myself and getting myself healthy. And that's what I pretty much made my full-time job between being arrested and being sentenced. And ironically, the, the person who went to jail in early 2016 was the healthiest version of me that ever existed. And that's uh, great. While I was there, that's when I decided to write my first book because the men I met in jail they were there for drugs, they were there for domestic violence, they were there for robbery and theft. But once they knew who I was, uh, they would actually come up to me a little, after a couple of weeks and be like, you know, I, I've, I've had sex with like 800 to 1,000 women in my life and I think I may have a problem. Let's talk about it. Yeah. You know, or, you know, I've yeah. got a guy who tells me, I, wow. know you, I know you were into pornography. Did you ever like go to your car at lunch and watch pornography when you were at work? I said, no, I never need to. He's like, well, every day I need to do that. The first thing I do when I get home is I go to the bathroom and I'll look at pornography and masturbate to it. Do you think that's a problem? It's like, yeah, I do think it's a problem. But these guys, simply because they drew the short straw in life, um, didn't have access to the kind of resources that I did. And they were more embarrassed by their sex and their porn issues than they were by any drug use. So they were by, you know, slapping their girlfriend around or any kind of theft situation. It was the sex and the porn that the shame was all around. So I decided to write my first book, which was a uh, basically memoir of the, t of the time that I started the magazine to the day that I was arrested uh, with a little bit of follow-up. Um, basically to show that there is no stereotypical porn addict that right. any there's men, women, rich, poor, fat, thin, black, white, Mexican, Asian. It doesn't matter who you are. Anybody can be a porn addict. And we, we, I think we have this vision of the 19 year old, you know, sketchy kid who lives in his mom's basement and has never mm -hmm. kissed a girl in real life. These, these incel types who couldn't get a girl if they tried. Yeah. And that, there are some of those, but that's not who porn addicts are. Porn addicts can be anybody. And if a white collar guy who is professional with the wife and kids and doing well can be a porn addict, anybody can. And that's why, you know, 
that was really my story. And it was that time in jail that I decided I need to be a voice for this. I need to share my story. Um, I don't want to just blend into the background once this is done. I have a story. I'm a decent communicator. I'm a professional writer. Mm -hmm. uh, and the statistics I learned about how hidden this addiction is, but just how it's blowing up. It's, you know, scary as all. And uh, so I, I decided to go down this road. I want to point something out because it's something that really, really personally irks me a lot. If I am a 16 year old, but you don't know within a couple of years, you know, you can't tell if I'm 16 or 18 or if I'm 21 or 17, you know what I mean? And I put myself as an underage person on there and then you get charged. It really makes me mad. Well, I tell you, Jen, I, I, I kind of came into it with that view, but I don't have it anymore. Talk to me about that. Here, here, here's the here's the thing. I knew that I had a mental health issue. I knew that I had bipolar disorder, and I have to live by the consequences of that decision. Was I healthy when I was doing that to women online? No. Was I healthy when I was doing it to that girl online? No. I think that my understanding of cause and effect of uh, consequences was very blurred at the time, both because of the alcohol, the porn, and everything that was going on in my life. I can't point to a more unhealthy time in my life. Mm -hmm. However, it's not like I was laying on the floor in a catatonic state, except for when I was doing this. I was still somewhat functional as a person. And like you said, there are 16-year-olds who look like 26-year-olds and vice versa. That doesn't give you the excuse to just say, okay, well, she looks old enough. You know, that, that, that's, that's just not the way it is. And right. I, and I think that, you know, I, I can't tell you for sure, but if one of your 15 or 16-year-old girls got in a situation where a 30-year-old guy was preying on them online, claiming he didn't know, and the truth is I didn't know. But the truth is also, I don't know that I cared. You know, if, okay. I, if, if somebody popped up on my screen who looked like they were 10 years old, I clicked to get right beyond them because I, I, I wasn't interested in that at all. If they looked old enough, that was mm -hmm. fine. I wasn't going, I wasn't asking for IDs. I wasn't, you know, prying with questions. I just wanted to manipulate. I just wanted to get that rush of dopamine that I could only get by exercising control at that point. So yeah, I, I don't blame my addiction. I don't you mm -hmm. know, say, oh, for me, I don't do any of that. And the, the truth is that you can't use as an excuse. In our society, no. that's illegal. And it, right. but if you, want to, if you want to change that, talk to your congressman, run for Congress, change right. the laws. But, but we all kind of agree as a society to live under this rule, uh, whether you like it or not. I agree. And I think what bothers me is that they talked about how you were using an avatar, so you were misrepresenting yourself and that was part of the problem. But so was she. I'm not saying, I'm not using it as a justification for you, but I am saying that if you have a kid who's 19 or 20, who's looking at porn, and a 15 year or or an 18 year old who has sex with a 15 year old, which is statutory rape in a lot of places because she's under 16. Um, so under the age of legal consent, it, it could completely ruin that 18 or 19 or 20 year old's life forever because yes. he's listed as a sexual offender. I don't have an answer. I'm just saying that the process of this, she was misrepresenting herself also as being 18. So no, I'm not justifying your behavior by any means. I'm saying that I think that it's a little broken 
we need a tiered system. I mean, that, yeah. that's the problem is that the person alphabetically, and I'm, I'm on the sexual offender registry here in Maine, mm -hmm. and the person next to me in the registry uh, raped two small children who were his stepchildren. And yeah. to, <laughs> to me, and you know, I've had people say there is no difference. You both, there is. both should go to hell. Um, but to me, there's a difference in those two things. Yes. You know, it's accidentally hitting someone with your car and then mowing down a school, you know, in a hail of bullets. There's yeah. a difference between those two things. Neither of them are good, but there's a right. difference. And a lot, of right. country, a lot of countries have a tiered system. I believe New Zealand is the one that does green light, yellow light, red light, which basically determines the, uh, the type of offender and their chance of recidivism. In mm -hmm. Maine, in Maine, the lowest designation for recidivism is medium. You are a medium okay. risk. You're a medium risk offender, or you're a high risk offender. It's like going to the going to the movie theater and trying to order the small drink, and they're like, "We don't have small. We have medium, large, and extra large." Right. And that was, you know, that was part of it that really bugged me. Is that you know, I took a lot of uh, tests to determine my chance of recidivism, and I got the lowest scores on a lot of them. The same score you would get on a lot of mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. I got, and. I'm still considered a medium risk because that's the way the system is set up. And I have, you know, told myself at some point, maybe I will make, you know, attacking the system part of my crusade. But right now, I think what's more important is just yeah. getting the education out there. At least that, that's, that's my calling right now. Right. And, as, and to answer your statement about my having a 15-year-old, if she's misrepresenting herself and a kid who's 19 or 20 could possibly, it could destroy the rest of his life as being a sexual offender, I would probably side with him. Not that what he did was right, but she misrepresented herself and that, that is just as wrong. I guess is what I'm, there's a whole bunch of it in there that bugs me, but I like the tiered system. That, that's the answer. Yeah, I think so. But so you're trying to try to get a politician to Ugh. do anything that looks like it's understanding or reducing severity for anybody who carries this scarlet letter right now. And it's not yeah. going to happen. The only place this is ever going to happen is in the courts um, where, which is where all real litigation or all real major social change happens. Uh, you know, gay marriage, for instance, was not done in Congress. It was done in the court system. Right. Uh, that's, that's where it's going to have to be done. We're not there as a society yet. I think we have to actually talk more about this before we get to be there as a society. So, you know, maybe in, in my kid's lifetime or my, my grandkid's lifetime, there will be that kind of system. And maybe I'm helping move us towards it now. But yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the ball game. I have to live with it. I've become much better at radical acceptance than I ever was before any of this happened. So when I asked you the initial question of what your job was before compared to now, actually like your title as a journalist is quite, the, it's the same, but you've changed direction. Yeah, I, uh, I, I spend probably about half my time working on the pornography addiction side of things. I do go to libraries, churches, give presentations. Um, I do work on my projects. I've got a website where I'm updating mm -hmm. the blog quite a bit. Um, so I'm, I'm quite busy on this side of, and again, with the, uh, you know, advising of people. Uh, but my day job is still as a ghostwriter and as a freelance journalist. Uh, All right. You know, I've got to keep a 
the the porn stuff is not paying off right now. Maybe right. at some point it will. Uh, it's but it's important enough for me to pursue it, and I can uh, on the side charge enough uh, writing books for people um, that I, I can I can survive. If if you can write in English in full sentences, you can always have a job somewhere. Right. Well, that would be a total, uh, that's another conversation. Maybe off we go after we get off the air. But um, I want to talk also, I was born in 1970. So that's just a reference point. When were you born? 1976. Okay. So we were definitely of the generation that did not have access to internet until oh, much later. Right, right. I think I was 18. So let's talk about the explosion in porn addiction since the advent of the internet. Well, I think that if you gave every child a mirror with some lines of Coke on it, you'd have a much bigger Coke problem in this country. And we've given every child the best porn computer on earth that's ever existed, where you can see horses fucking goats fucking old people, and right. we expect everything to be okay. That's not, that's not the way it works. <laughs> Thank you. So, I mean, I love the internet, and you and I use it a lot for what we yeah. do oh, and I, I, i'm on it constantly 12 hours a day yeah having said that there's good and evil and everything and this is making things so much easier actually i would think much more than anything else for the alcoholic you have to actually go and buy the alcohol for the drug right. addict you have to illegally in most cases go and purchase the drug where for porn addicts we used to have to go buy the magazine or find them and hide them under right. your mattress and like it's just everywhere Oh yeah, it was the, the, one of the you know great days of my life was when I found a video store that would rent triple X movies to me, uh, and when I you know when I was fourteen or fifteen years old, and after school I'd ride my bike there, I'd rent two videos, then I'd go to the uh, uh, convenience store that I knew would sell me beer, and I'd always buy three or four. Never bought a six pack. Didn't have the balls to bring that to the counter, but I'd bring three or four. You know individual beers and you know that was that was my day after school most days oh my uh, gosh i'd go home i'd drink two beers i'd watch the first porn video then after everybody went to sleep at night because i had a vcr in my room i'd yeah. pop in the second one drink the other beer or two that i had and that's the way i kind of got through life at, at 14 15 16 years old it used to be a back room with a curtain yeah. Well, see, I, I, I remember the saloon doors. So, okay. 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 It, it's, it was something different, but it was always like hidden in the back yeah. corner and you didn't want to be seen ever coming out. Right. Of the, I was like, I was afraid to go in. I never went in until I was an adult. Right. And I was like, you know, this is kind of bullshit. I, if I want to see what's in there, I see what's in there. It was like the store where, you, where you'd buy bongs and stuff. Yeah. You right. Know, you, you never wanted someone seeing you coming out with clearly a bong in a bag. <laughs> um, it's a it's an ornament for my Christmas tree. Right, yeah, exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. I really uh, enjoy smoking tobacco in, in strange <laughs> ways. Well, my son got caught with a dab pen. It was uh, in his vehicle at the high school in a place where when school police kind of walked through the aisles, they saw it. And I was like, first of all, dumb. Like you right. can't put it in a glove box. Second of all, what the hell? you know, and he's like, there was vape in it. it w there was no weed in it. I'm like, well, the drug dogs hit your car pretty hard. So at right. one point, like, come on, you know, right. it's just sort of stupidity at that point. Although I didn't want to encourage him to be better at lying about things, but I right. was, it was really stupid. So now this is, I had one of my kids that had to go through psychosexual rehabilitation modules because, um, 
like you said, as kids, they're being exposed to a lot. And he was actually exposed by a friend. And this friend was young and pretty advanced in what his searches were. And that psychosexual therapist said that when they go to conferences now, porn companies are actually targeting kids that are in single digit ages. Where it used to be years ago, it was like the 14 year old after school that could rent from something, you know, you'd, 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 uh, go for the 14 to 18 year old kids. And now it's like kids that are five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Can you speak to any of that at all? I don't buy it. Really? Honestly, I don't, you don't, I don't you understand don't, how they, they don't, they don't need to do it. Okay. I, I, I had a friend who, or wasn't a friend, but a, a person that I knew, friend of the family who I don't remember if it was RJR Reynolds or whoever, whoever produced camel cigarettes. Okay. Um, met him like 10 years after. I don't know if you remember in the mid to late 90s, everybody's talking about Joe Camel is getting yes. kids to smoke cigarettes. His mouth looks like a dick and balls. And this is encouraging kids to smoke by a cartoon character. Kids aren't stupid. You're not smoking because there's a cartoon camel smoking. You're smoking because your friends are smoking. You're smoking because mm -hmm. it makes you look cool. You're smoking because it's an adult thing to do. Now, I don't think you actually need to target five and six year olds to get pornography because the average kid who sees it now is 11 or 12. And okay. you're, not, you're not making money because remember this, pornography is a business. You're yeah. not making money off a five or six year old kid. You're not making money off a 10, 11 year old kid. Can they get to it? Of course. But you know, it's not like, I, I just don't think, and, and maybe I'm completely wrong and I'm sure people will let me know that I'm wrong, but I just don't see how this industry is targeting because they don't need to. You look at something like Pornhub's annual statistics. Mm -hmm. Pornhub, uh, I think it was something like between 2020 and 2016, they got something like 13 billion more hits. But in that time, they dropped from the first most visited website to the third uh, as far as pornography goes. Two others are now in front of them, despite the fact they have 13 billion more hits. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it's like they don't need to go after these audiences. If you look at their revenue model, it's not like they're suffering. They don't have to, they don't have to go after this. And it's one of these things where pornography has been around since cave painting times. Right. You know, pornography, you can see some of the, you know, dirtiest stuff on earth. If you go to a museum of Egyptian artifacts and look at some of the vases and stuff, uh, you'll see absolutely, you know, triple X stuff on it. Pornography's always been around. I always tell people, I do not make my uh, passion about ending pornography. Pornography is not going to end. Just like they tried to get rid of drinking 100 years ago, that didn't work. We're not going to ever have prohibition against pornography. What right. we need to do is have education. And that's what this group of kids right now who are starting to get married grew up on is a world there where there was no education about the pornography that was being streamed to them through the internet and that's i don't know what we do about this group but we need to start talking about pornography to younger children i'm sorry that that's the way the world is but here in 2020 you can make it age appropriate because if we don't there are serious ramifications that are going to happen uh two years ago there was a study by a group called the barna group out of texas they found that 32 percent of men between the ages of 18 and 30 were 
uh, self-declared themselves as either being a porn addict or having a problem with pornography. That's one third of men under 30 years old. Now, if they don't start dealing with this, they're going to become 40 and 50 and mm -hmm. 60. And what happens in 2050 when nearly half the men in this country are porn addicts? What happens in 2050 when a third of the women are now porn addicts in this country? We need to talk to these kids about it the way we talk to them about drugs, alcohol, mm -hmm. smoking, crossing the street the right way. And you can make it age appropriate at five and six. You can make it right. age appropriate at 10 and 12. You can make it age appropriate at 14 or 15. Um, but that dialogue needs to start happening with our youngest kids. Kids want direction. Kids want to know the right thing to do. Kids are looking for mentors and leadership. And if you are afraid to talk to them about this stuff, well, they're going to find it out there. And you can porn proof your house all you want because they're okay. You, you took care of three devices. Congratulations. There are still hundreds of millions of devices out there that you can't porn proof them on. So right. you, need, you need to porn proof them up here. Well, and I think it's an uncomfortable conversation maybe for a lot of us to have, and it's definitely a newer conversation because I don't have any hesitation talking about alcoholic beverages and why they're for adults only or how they alter you or using them in moderation or conversations about drugs or when you're ready to have sex, how to do it safely. Choose who, when, where, how. The it's okay to say no. I, I don't have any problem having that conversation. Pornography is a new conversation, I think, or newer. Because of that, it's a little uncomfortable for those of us stumbling around having conversations with our younger kids as they're growing up, but it's just another conversation that we should have. So yeah. I, I was looking down at the statistics and, uh, the, and then you just went into it, which has happened a lot in this interview as I'm, I have things written down and then you just go into them automatically. I do want to kind of wrap up our conversation with words of advice. You have had a successful marriage. Yeah, 17 uh, years. You had to address your bipolar mental health issues, which was a little different than maybe some people are working with, but you did that. You took ownership and you addressed it. Well, two thirds of addicts across the board, no matter what kind of addict you are, have a co-occurring mental disorder or mental health disorder. So Thank you for that. It's, yep. it's, 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 it, they go hand in hand. Right. Right. So addressing that. So leave us with the last few minutes talking about the best things that you did for yourself i know you talked about rehab and really and you didn't even know you didn't even think that pornography was an issue when you went in but once you no. once there was a flag you recognized it and you did what it took right. outside of that what about the conversations you had i know you had conversations with both of your kids with your wife what were some of the best things that you've done to make sure that you're healthy well uh i'll tell you the the first light that went on i even didn't think i was an alcoholic um to be honest, the, the day after that I was arrested, I went and saw my lawyer for the first time. And his, set, his first question was, are we talking about a litigation game or are we talking about a sentencing game? And I said, it's sentencing. They've, they've got me nailed. Um, yeah. And he said, okay, well, is there any drug or alcohol issues here? And I said, nope, no drugs, and I'm not a drunk. And my father and my wife were both in that meeting, and they said, oh, yes, you are. And he said, okay, well, I, we have a few facilities that we have relationships with. We will get you into one of them. And I said, well, you know, if that's going to look good for the judge, uh, send me there. And he said, he said, no, hold, wait, hold on. This is all going to be over someday on a legal issue. You may go to jail, you may not. You may get big probation, you may get none. We don't know what's going to happen with the legal side of things right now. However, 
you should go and get help for yourself because when all of this legal stuff is over, you don't want to be the same asshole. You don't want to make the same mistake twice. And I was kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever, that's cool. It wasn't until that first week I went through rehab that, like I said, it clicked that, oh my, I am the alcoholic they're talking about. And that was the most important thing. Number one was being open to the process of accepting the fact that I am an addict. And I know people don't like that term. And one of the things I know I'm sure you read in the book is that we talk about labels don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm bipolar only because of a label, because of a set of symptoms. Um, There is no blood test for bipolar. There is no blood test for ADHD uh, or, or, or most of these things. It's a series of symptoms that they then put a label on. Who cares what the label is? You are who you are. You need to deal with that. Whether you have a bad habit or an obsession or an addiction, you know, accept who you are. And that's one of the things that I had to do was really accept who I was. I also had to accept that I didn't have all the answers for myself, that, gee, there was stuff that went down when I was younger that I don't Uh have, I have not wrapped my arms around yet. I'm not even sure what really happened. It took a while to figure it out. You know, I developed uh, eight. 10 instances of what happened. And then my therapist was like, okay, let's stop that. Because you know what happened now, whether we dig up 15 or 20 or 25, it doesn't matter. You know what happened now. Let's move on to other things. Uh, Uh, So be open to the idea that uh, you may not have all your answers and it may take you a while to have answers. I still once in a while have these great aha moments, which are, are, are amazing. They're just epiphanies. That's like, Oh my goodness. I had never put these blocks together in my life to, you know, form this little chain that gets me from A to B to C to D. And I understand this now. So you've got to be open to it like that. Um, and the other thing I, I uh, think is that my wife, despite not having, the resources at her disposal, which was one of the reasons, uh, one of the big reasons I created this uh, new book was that I want the partners to have something to look at, uh, to be able to reference that my wife could reference. She still handled things very, very well. The two most important things that you can do uh, if you have a husband or a partner or a wife in a situation where they are an addict is number one, don't judge. You know, I, I looked at a teenager. I also looked at some other really sick shit in my, in my time. I've seen just about all of it out there. Um, don't judge, you know, what your little, what turns you on, uh, probably was similar to what turns me on, but I had to keep escalating because of my addiction. Normal man on woman porn was not doing it for me anymore because you have to escalate. That's why I ended up jumping over to chat rooms. So number one, try not to judge because if you don't judge, the second part comes in. You need to create a safe space and a safe environment. I know that you want to yell at the person. I know you want to scream at them. I know that you want to tell them that they make you feel like you're less of a person that you wonder if it's your fault. Are you doing something wrong? Well, you know, the addiction has nothing to do with you. It's probably been there long before he ever met you. Uh, But uh, if you can keep the environment safe for him, he might start opening up. He might be more open to this. If he knows he's going to be attacked, well, why would he share anything with you? Right. While, uh, while you understand that uh, objectively, you've got to understand that emotionally too, that he's going through a lot, that he probably never, I mean, 99% of the time, never wanted to hurt you. 
This is just the only way he knows how to deal with this thing. Doesn't excuse it, but it's the only way he knows how to deal with this thing. So, you know, that, that's, that's kind of where I'd put it at. If you need help, get it. Even if you're the partner and he says there's right. no problem, he says there's nothing going on and you know something's going on and it's eating at you, go get some professional help right. and work through it with a professional who can tell you what your options are, who can tell you what the next steps are, who's worked with you know hundreds of people and has seen the way that this movie ends and all the different ways that it can end. You know, I, I'm a bit of an anomaly. I'm a very good success story um, and, and I had a you know wonderful wife by my side. I was able to take the time to uh, deal with, with my issues. Um, mm -hmm. It was, it was, I was very lucky that way. I'm very lucky that I had money saved up that I could afford the rehab yep. and that my family had some resources that they could help me as well. I know not everybody has that, but if you have this issue, you need to go get some help and, and recovery is a bitch. Recovery is hard. Recovery is emotionally draining and grueling, but I'll tell you on the other side of it, I have the best life I've ever had right now. I have the best marriage I've ever had right now. My mm -hmm. wife a couple months ago said to me, you know, I've always loved you, but I actually like you now. <laughs> and, and, and I get it. I absolutely yes. get it. I absolutely right. get it. I feel like 17 years into marriage, I'm finally in the marriage I was supposed to be in very early on, but I didn't have the capacity. And anybody can have that capacity if they're willing to work for it. Joshua, thank you so much for coming on and being so open. I really appreciate your conversation. Well, I had a good time and I, I love talking to people who uh, are open to this